hit hardest to hit by the economic effects. It's the same communities that are feeling the worst effect of the virus, who are exposed to air pollution, and who are exposed to the worst effects of climate change. So, you know, this isn't a coincidence. This is what environmental racism looks like in this country. Hi, this is Julia Piper, host of Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the University of Southern California's Schwarzenegger Institute. You just heard the sound there of our local Black Lives Matter protests here in Venice Beach in Santa Monica, California. The protest took place on Tuesday, and I can report that it was a passionate but very peaceful event. There were babies, dogs, Bob Marley playing. It was a rather uplifting scene in these heavy times. In this episode, we talk a lot about climate policy and racial justice because the two are inextricably linked. Marine biologist and climate policy advisor Ayana Elizabeth Johnson wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post this week where she said, to white people who care about maintaining a habitable planet, I need you to become actively anti-racist. I need you to understand that our racial inequality crisis is intertwined with our climate crisis. If we don't work on both, we'll succeed at neither. I need you to step up, please, because I'm exhausted. On this show, we learn how one team of policy architects stepped up to craft a detailed climate justice plan for former Democratic presidential candidate Jay Inslee. Maggie Thomas is currently political director at Evergreen Action, a new group of former Inslee campaign staffers created to promote a comprehensive climate plan for Democrats. She previously served as Deputy Climate Director on the Inslee campaign, following that as Climate Policy Advisor for the Elizabeth Warren presidential campaign. Before we get into our interview, I want to highlight an episode we ran last month with four leading Black voices about the intersection of racial and climate injustice. The episode featured Naomi Davis, a local Black leader in Chicago, who fought for a seat at the policymaking table to get her community funding for a solar jobs training program in the state of Illinois. We also heard from Professor Tony Reams at the University of Michigan about preliminary focus group results on how the African-American community is thinking about climate and energy issues. So if you're taking time to mute yourself these days and to listen more, I hope you'll check out our episode of Political Climate on Fighting Energy Injustice and Coronavirus in African-American Communities. Also, I want to recommend checking out all the podcasts on climate and energy justice assembled by Alexis Player, a member of the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, or CELI. Her list includes an episode from the Hip Hop Caucus, one from the show Radical Imagination on some of America's most vulnerable communities, as well as an episode from Living Corporate featuring the president and CEO of the Green Lining Institute. We'll be sure to link to that list in our show notes, and we hope that you'll check it out. In a moment, you'll hear from Maggie Thomas at Evergreen Action, as well as my Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon is a partner at Boundary Stone Partners and a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. And Shane Skelton, a Republican, is a partner at S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. On this show, we learn more about how Democrats are rallying around a three-pronged climate platform that puts justice at its center. 
We discuss how this is playing politically and whether or not it could sway the 2020 election. Our interview with Maggie Thomas coming up after this brief message. This episode is brought to you with support from the nonprofit environmental forum, EarthX. On the heels of World Ocean Day on Tuesday, June 9th through Thursday, June 11th, be sure to tune in to EarthX Ocean, a virtual event on protecting underwater life support systems. The event features an all-star lineup of speakers, including National Geographic explorers, coral reef restoration experts, innovators in plastic pollution cleanup, and more. Register now at earthx.org slash earthxocean. So Maggie, thank you for coming on Political Climate. We know that you know Brandon Hurlbut, our Democratic co-host here. Uh, Brandon, when did you first meet Maggie? Maggie is my boss on the Elizabeth Warren campaign. <laughs> I literally can't imagine bossing Brandon Hardly. around. It's hard to get him to show up on time. <laughs> I wanted to start. Wait a by... minute! I'm the punctual one, not usually. Okay, uh, Shane, true. back me up on that. Okay, fine. You I was are just going to say I, I didn't know if I was supposed to let that go. It's like, come yeah, on, really? You're really? mostly on time. You're mostly on time, but I, it's hard to get you to like, you know, do a, a, a like a social media tweet or you know, that's yeah, a big occasion. That's definitely true. That's different than being on time, right? <laughs> Okay, fair. That came out wrong. But I mean, would it kill you to tweet every now and then? Come on. Okay, Maggie, sorry. Back to you. We want to hear your story of of working on the campaigns. I'd like to start there. We're going to get more into Evergreen Action and what you're working on now. But to set the scene, um, you had some pretty key roles in, I guess, the Inslee campaign before going to the Warren campaign. Tell us a little bit about that. Where? How did you get involved? Yeah, um, thanks so much. And, and thanks to you all for having me on. Really excited to be here today. Um, so I joined the Inflee campaign in April of last year as the deputy climate director. Um, at the time, it was completely a dream job. Um, I had no idea that there would be an entire presidential campaign centered around defeating the climate crisis and transitioning our economy to 100% clean energy. Also, I was hired as the deputy climate director, which meant there was a climate director. There was a whole team of people out there who were working you know, specifically at the intersection of climate at politics, um, which is which is what I love to do and um, was such a huge honor to be a part of that campaign and, you know, work alongside Governor Jay Inslee and so many of the other incredible staff on the team. When that campaign wrapped up, um, I was hired by the Warren campaign um, as the climate policy advisor on, on the policy team. Um, another total dream job. It was a bit intimidating at first, but man, what a what an incredible um, and amazing group of folks. Um, and just Senator Warren is an incredible uh, woman in her own right and, and such an honor to work on that campaign as well. Um, on that campaign, you know, I was the only person um, whose job it was to spend 100 percent of my time thinking about climate. Um, so it was my job to do everything from, you know, make sure that every tweet that we put out that said something about climate made sense and struck the right tone and, and hit the right policies to, you know, writing, writing some of the plans and being the lead author on some of the plans myself. You know, I, I think it's really important um, to sort of go a little bit back in time here and, and talk a bit about um, the role that Governor Inslee played and his campaign played um, in the presidential primary cycle. What Governor Inslee did was he put forward a vision of really what it means to marshal every resource in the federal government around defeating the climate crisis. And, you know, I really think that he was the fir- one of the first people to really do this, to paint the picture and, and show the vision um, that, you know, this isn't about new policies at the EPA, but this is about 
a full-out government mobilization. I also think it's really important to mention two of my colleagues on the Inslee campaign who were central to policy development. So Sam Ricketts and Brock and Hendricks um, really led Governor Inslee's policy development, of which I, I also helped as well. And, you know, I think they really pushed these ideas into the public dialogue. The other thing that I'll add is that, you know, when you are on a presidential campaign like this, I really believed that it was my job and, and our job as a campaign to be a listener. And I think that, you know, part of what my role was, was to get to know as many people in the climate movement as possible and understand what the policies were that they were advocating for and translate that into, you know, these presidential policy plans. And so it was a complete honor to get to be able to do that and and meet so many incredible people, whether it be on the campaign trail um, with Governor Inslee um, or, you know, working on the policy team with, with Senator Warren. I definitely want to get more into what you learned from constituents and the policies you ended up crafting. But first, tell us quickly about Evergreen Action, where you currently work. What is the organization all about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when Governor Inslee left the presidential race, he made his 218-page policy plan into an open source document. And that um, is what Evergreen is, is taking up. It's this promise to provide an open source climate policy platform to inspire bold action by the next president and Congress beginning on day one in January 2021. So Evergreen is, is made up of the staffers behind Governor Jay Inslee's presidential campaign, who came together in 2019 on a mission to elect a new president to work towards the federal government engaging in an all-out national mobilization to defeat the climate crisis and to create millions of jobs in a clean energy economy. Maggie, it's Brandon. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. Are you surprised to see that there is uh, more alignment on climate policy within the Democratic Party than some may think? Um, I think, you know, some of the people uh, may have been surprised by the Roberts piece uh, from like Sunrise Movement to some of the Democratic establishment sort of uh, finding consensus around uh, standards, investment and justice. Um, Or, you know, have you seen this coming for a long time or is this a new thing? Um, You've had a great seat, uh, sort of front row seat to all that. Tell us what you think about it. And just quickly for context, that David Roberts piece uh, published in Vox is entitled, At Last, A Climate Policy Platform That Can Unite the Left. And we'll be sure to link to that in our show notes. Sorry, over to you, Maggie. Yeah, you know, I think that um, this was really this idea of standards, investments, and justice was really the the framework that we used um, on the Inslee campaign. But like I said, you know, it was our job to be listeners. And so a lot of what we put forward as part of these plans came from, you know, various parts of the climate movement. And so it, it was clear to us that sort of there, there has been this coalescing and this centering around these three ideas of standards, investments, and justice. You know, particularly for clean energy standards, um, we've seen a lot of success um, in the states. Um, we know that clean energy standards are what are driving the most sustained and long-term emissions reductions in the states. And there's no reason why we shouldn't take that, that policy from the state level and scale it up and apply it to the federal level. You know, I think with investment, you know, this is what the Green New Deal did such an incredible job calling for and sort of painting this vision for the American public about And I think as well as the Recovery Act that, Brandon, I know you were involved in as well, you know, this idea that we should and we can create investments at the federal, make investments at the federal level 
to spur clean energy development and this transition to a clean energy economy. And then similarly, I would say on this focus and prioritization of justice, we know that for decades, communities of color have been subject to intentional environmental racism. And the policies that we put forward were really a product of what we heard on the campaign trail. Um, and I think that this is something that is really you know, uniform and, and much needed across the entire climate movement is this call for the centering of environmental justice. Maggie, this is Shane. Uh, a moment ago, you mentioned you know how some of the, the clean energy or, or renewable portfolio standards are working in the States, and I, I agree they're working well. One of the things that, that I run into in my work, and I'm guessing we're similar in this way, is you can look at all these great ideas and see what's working in the States and see you know how you could significantly reduce you know carbon emissions or at least capture them. And then when you're trying to sort of sketch out how you translate these policies into legislative text, you run into jurisdictional issues, whether that's with state PUCs or state legislatures, or just a difficulty in designing a federal program that can actually do the thing you want it to do. So that's a long wind up to my question, which is at Evergreen, are you all trying to promote the entire package, the ideas within the package, or have you started to think about how one would actually write legislation so that if there were a, a Joe Biden presidency and, and majorities of Democrats, or at least you know willing Republicans uh, in Congress, you could actually plop something down on the floor and, and have a vote on it. Yeah, so we we have already started. Um, we've gotten gotten right to work. Um, you know, I think certainly one of the things that we are seeing as a result of this pandemic fueled economic crisis, as as you all know, is an opportunity to sort of open this box and rethink how our economy is structured. And this gives us an opportunity right now, actually, to start thinking about, you know, how do we spur and incentivize this transition away from a dependence on fossil fuels and towards a 100% clean energy economy. So we have actually already started um, working with offices on the Hill um, to, you know, take out pieces of the, of the Evergreen plan the Evergreen Action Plan, which um, is a distilled version of the 218 pages of climate policy, believe it or not, um, we got it down to 85 pages, and that was just about as uh, short as we could possibly get it. And sort of taking that plan and taking it to Congress and saying, hey, okay, which pieces are most interesting to you, you know, and working with individual offices to actually take the ideas that are there and um, turn it into legislative text. I think that's an important process point because there was this discussion that the Green New Deal was this huge, hard to swallow piece of legislation. But it's evolved from that, right? And people are taking pieces and it may not pass as one lump sum and one big bill. And so I think that's an important point that there's pieces of it that are being broken down. I'm curious, which pieces of it do you think are getting the most traction right now, Maggie? Because there's been a lot of think pieces about a green stimulus, a lot of good ideas out there. But right now, Congress doesn't seem all that interested in taking it up. Uh, there's even hesitancy around other kinds of stimulus right now with lots of spending uh, having already taken place and some political gridlock. So I'm curious, what pieces are you seeing actually gain traction? Actually, this is a really timely question because um, just today it came out that House Democrats are going to be rolling out um, what they think an infrastructure package should look like. I think it's very clear that there's appetite on the Hill to start making some of these investments now. You know, it's also very clear that there are 600,000 individuals who work in clean energy that have lost their job directly as a result of COVID. 
And and this is a time that we want to see our you know leaders um, in Congress really step up and sort of recognize that this is an opportunity and a moment to start to create this transition, this energy transition, and frankly, this all-out mobilization of the federal government that it's going to take, which in very much includes robust and bold and ambitious legislation. I have a, I have a follow-up on that, Maggie. One of the things that, that I've heard from several you know, thinking people, including in the Inslee plan, that doesn't really come up in political discourse is like paying farmers to store you know, carbon in the soil, which would help farmers who frankly need help. Um, it attracts a rural and conservative constituency. It obviously attracts anyone who cares about um, sequestering carbon and, and addressing climate change. Have you found that those sort of less talking point driven sort of cable news driven issues, but that have, you know, or at least should have broad range support? Have you guys experienced any success in seeing, uh, you know, I guess a broader range of just the left, but people saying, yeah, that just makes sense. That's just a good idea. And I think a lot of people, conservative, liberal or otherwise, don't often think about how could, you know, farmers in rural areas help us with climate change. But does that stuff get any play when you're having, you know, dialogue with with thought leaders and also with with members of Congress? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, interesting that you say that because when we put out our the Evergreen Clean Jumpstart plan, which everyone can go check out, um, which talks about sort of ideas that both would provide aid to states as well as federal investment ideas that support our clean energy objectives here. Um, we rolled that out alongside polling with Data for Progress that showed overwhelming support for a lot of these ideas. And among the most popular chain is exactly what you just said, which is, you know, Americans support and Americans believe that we should be supporting small family farmers for, you know, their contributions to fighting climate change. Um, and we absolutely have seen success um, and, and uptake, particularly in our conversations on the Hill, um, about some of these ideas. Another idea that I think um, is worth talking about is this idea of a climate conservation core. And so, you know, how can we actually put people back to work by thinking about, you know, how, how do we achieve these, for example, you know, restoration projects. It's going to take a lot of people to do this sort of restoration work. You know, how do we, how do we rebuild our coastal ecosystems to make them strong and resilient again, against, you know, the worst impacts of climate change? Um, and that's another idea that both is incredibly popular with the American public and we've seen a lot of uptake with, um, on the Hill. Just to flag, we actually had Julian Brave Noise Cat from Data for Progress on the podcast in a, in recent weeks. So uh, anyone listening, I encourage you to go check that out to put uh, some more numbers around what we're talking about here. Um, Maggie, I want to ask you to do, I want to ask you to put a little more meat around the bones of this platform we're talking about. The sector-specific standards, large-scale public investments, and a commitment to justice for vulnerable workers and communities. Can you give me a few top policies that we're really talking about here? Because large-scale public investments, um, just to play devil's advocate, that sounds nice, but what are we investing in? How much are we talking about? One trillion, 16 trillion? Those were some of the you know ranges we saw in the climate plans presented in the Democratic primary. So I'm just trying to get a sense of what really Democrats are rallying around here. Uh, do we have that kind of specificity yet? Yeah, so... Um Great. Thanks for pulling us back to our core here. So um, this idea of clean energy standards, you know, I really think about it as it's the rules of the road. It's the guardrails that tell us exactly when we should be powering our economy with clean energy and how much of it there needs to be. 
and we need enforceable near-term sector-specific targets as benchmarks along the way to keep us on track. So, you know, when we say sector-specific, you know, we're talking about the power sector, the building sector, you know, thinking about how do we retrofit our buildings so that they're energy efficient and we're building new buildings um, so that they're energy efficient. Our transportation sector so that we're incentivizing new zero emission vehicles on the road. And we're saying, you know, by a certain time, um, you know, we're not actually going to sell gas vehicles anymore. We're just going to we're going to start selling zero emission vehicles. And I think, you know, it's it's easier to start thinking about this when you break it out by sector, because as you're saying, it does take a specific suite of policies targeted sector by sector. Similarly, you know, when we when we talk about investments, um, I, I was saying this a little bit earlier, but you know, we, we really have a pandemic-fueled economic crisis, and we need to create millions of good-paying jobs, and we need to be investing in infrastructure, in clean water, in clean energy. And there is a huge role to play here for the federal government to actually appropriate and create these large-scale investments to drive the industry-scale transitions that we're going to need in order to transition our economy to 100% clean energy. And we should use the power investments to drive that change. And that's exactly the role that the federal government should play here. Interestingly, you know, Joe Biden knows a thing or two about economic recovery. Um, he oversaw and led the implementation of the Recovery Act in 2009, which included $90 billion in clean energy investments and revolutionized entire industries. So this isn't a new idea that we're talking about. These are ideas that have been have Thanks, been workshopped um, and and put out into the American dialogue in public and public and really tested. Um, and, and we're hoping to do that again. Um, in terms of the exact dollar figure, you know, um, there is a lot of conversation out there about, you know, is it is it one trillion versus 10 trillion? I think the important thing to keep in mind is that, you know, we will be spending large scale public dollars and that will leverage all that will leverage private dollars. And we saw exactly that happen in the Recovery Act. And then um, just to end on on this really important point of justice, um, and then maybe we can sort of dive a little bit more into justice, because I think especially in this moment in time that we're in, it's really important to talk about our connection to um, environmental justice. But, you know, we need a more detailed plan for environmental justice in this country. We know communities are hit first and worst by the climate crisis, and we know that they need to not just be a part of the solution, but they actually need to lead our solution. And that's exactly what we learned on the campaign trail um, as, you know, Governor Inslee traveled around the country meeting environmental justice leaders from from all across the country. Yeah. So let's dig a little bit more into that environmental justice piece, because as you noted earlier, and I think everyone knows, it's an incredibly timely issue. It's always been timely, but we're just now getting the spotlight shone on it through the protests that are taking place. Uh, but there are some real underlying issues that are some sometimes getting drowned out by the latest news headline. So I wanted to understand more how you crafted the environmental justice elements of the Inslee plan, now this you know ongoing democratic uh, platform. Who did you talk to? How did you form this? We should note that, you know, everyone on this podcast right now is a white person. Um, so how do you make sure that you're actively hearing from people whose lives this kind of policy would affect the most? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is exactly, you know, what we struggled with as we sat down and said, OK, as a as a campaign team, not just a policy team, but a campaign team, how are we going to craft the best policy to really get at the root of environmental racism in this country. And 
you know, what the Inslee campaign did and, and really, you know, at the vision of Governor Inslee was we, we traveled around the country and we listened and we learned. And we did all of that before putting out an environmental justice plan. And, you know, I will say there are lots of pressures on a, on a presidential campaign to, to get, you know, the certain plan out before the certain big debate so that you can talk about it on the debate stage. But, but for us, it was so important that we do the listening and the learning. Um, before we put together and we put out this plan. So it's so important now to talk about these issues as well in light of the tragic murders of innocent Black men like George Floyd and so many others. And and I think it's important to be able to say and recognize that environmental racism exists in our country. You know, you'll see it in communities like 48217 in Detroit, which is named for its zip code, the most polluted in Michigan and one of the most polluted in the country. Um, we went to 48217 three times on Governor Inslee's uh, campaign. Um, it's a predominantly black, low-income community, um, and they live in the shadow of the Marathon Oil Refinery. But it's not just the Marathon Oil Refinery. When you're there, as far as the eye can see, the landscape is peppered with industrial plants. And this community is being poisoned with every breath. The community is plagued with cancer and incredibly high rates of childhood and adult asthma. Another trip that we took was to Little Haiti in Miami. Um, it's a mostly Latino and, and low-income um, community. And residents are being priced out of their neighborhood because the white and wealthy people who live in the high-rise condos on the beach that everyone sees pictures of are being forced to move inland to higher ground because of sea level rise. And now with COVID, we're seeing this clear link between communities exposed to air pollution and those who are hardest hit by the virus. And then, you know, who is going to be hit hardest hit by the economic effects? It's the same communities that are feeling the worst effect of the virus, who are exposed to air pollution, and who are the worst exposed to the worst effects of climate change. So, you know, this isn't a coincidence. This is what environmental racism looks like in this country. What are some of the solutions that you heard from community members that they want the most? Could you point to, I know there's probably a plethora of them, but could you point to one or two that you really feel like we can do this, we can nail this, and it will have a big impact? Yep. Yeah. So, um, you know, on Lorenzley's, uh campaign, the the environmental justice plan was called the Community Climate Justice Plan. And we spent a lot of time just thinking about the name of this plan. And we, we landed on Community Climate Justice Plan because that was the tenant with which we wanted to approach every one of the policy prescriptions that were in the plan. So I just say that up front because I think it's important to keep in mind as, as we think about the specific policies. But um, to name a few you know, transforming the White House Council on Environmental Quality into a Council on Environmental Justice that will, for the first time, center federal environmental policy around equity, justice, and inclusion. Another idea is this idea of equity impact mapping. You know, in order to put forward the policies that are really necessary to start to unravel the, the structures of environmental racism in our country, we need to understand the actual impact of them. And that means doing a nationwide data collection project on where are the air pollution hotspots, overlaying that with income data, overlaying that with health data, overlaying that with education data. All of these things are related. And until we actually make the investments necessary to understand the scope of the problem, we can't we can't put forward the policy that's, you know, in theory, aiming to target it. Another idea is um, actually came from the New York um, climate justice bill which is an idea that 40% of all climate dollars that are spent by the federal government should be spent in frontline communities. And, you know, I think this is a really important one to keep in mind, but 
you can't do something like this, like create a target for spend without understanding the data. And so that's why we always pair the equity impact mapping with the idea of an equity screen. So to bring this back to politics, Brandon, I want to ask you, because I know you're also working on these issues. I know Democrats want to have this kumbaya moment, and that is part of the political process that you guys are going through. But is there truly as much alignment as like the David Roberts piece would suggest? Because we know that there are members of the Sunrise Movement who not that long ago were protesting at Nancy Pelosi's office, pushing for more concrete action. And Joe Biden, you know, he has a history of supporting the fossil fuel industry. His climate plan was smaller in scope. He talked about EV charging a lot on the debate stage, but we didn't hear grand vision. Is this really happening for his campaign on on their side of the equation? Or is this kind of like, let's placate the left and like get them to show up and let's move on? One of my frustrations, you know, Shane's not the only one that has frustrations with the mainstream media. Um, I think one of the tropes that they love to play out is like Democrats in disarray. And I think I'm not saying disarray, to be clear. We're talking about real differences in what ends up in a bill. You know, I've had a unique perspective on this from having, you know, worked in Washington, D.C., close ties to the Democratic establishment, but also, you know, been a board member of Solutions Project, an environmental justice organization, um, you know, helping uh, uh, Sunrise Movement and such informally. Uh, So I feel like I've seen this entire spectrum for a while. And um, I think once people really started talking, uh, they found a lot more alignment than they thought. I I can tell you on the Biden Climate Task Force, um, Biden-Bernie Climate yeah, Task Force? Yeah, the Biden-Bernie uh, Climate Task Force, you know, once some of those folks started talking to each other, they were like, oh, wow, we have a lot in common. Um, and so I think some of the stuff that Maggie is talking about um, with, uh, you know, like a carbon tax, you know, a lot of the economists, you know, uh, supported that in the past, uh, but it wasn't really helpful to uh, frontline communities and aggressive. Yeah. And I think now a big shift has been like every plan has to have that as a core tenant and it's brought more people into this coalition. It's made it easier for Democrats to find alignment on some of these things. What has, sorry, uh, making justice, environmental justice, a central part of this. Um, it's really broadened the coalition. And I think we found, um, from some of the things that we've done in the past, uh, like Maggie's referencing with the Recovery Act, those investments worked. They really did. Uh, the government investing in these things, um, it's a good role for it. And setting standards, as Maggie's talking about, rules of the road, a good role for government is like the sort of orchestra analogy, right? Like the government can be the conductor, right? Everybody can decide what part they're going to play and play their notes. But like it's an, it's an appropriate role for government to sort of set you know, this is the direction that we're going to go. And I'm curious if Shane, uh, you know, because I believe, Maggie knows this, that the Evergreen action, uh, you know, policy should be the core climate policies of the Democratic Party. I believe that very strongly. I'm curious to Shane, you know, from what you've heard today, what do you agree with and disagree with? Is there, you know, is there things that Republicans can support uh, on some of the things that Maggie's talking about? I think so. I'll, I'll be the first one to be perfectly honest and say I did not read all 200 plus pages. Maybe the maybe the the 89 page document will be more more amenable to my skill set. But um, I, I think so. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, it, 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 but but I wanted to. I genuine I genuinely did because I'm I'm curious to see you know what what thoughts are out there. I think some of the stuff that that seemed maybe a little bit unthinkable just 
three or four years ago, like a clean energy standard, um, is actually not that unachievable. So long as um, there are discussions, and, and my understanding is that there are currently, frankly, on Capitol Hill about how do you make sure that communities are made whole? How do you make sure that any sort of transition uh, acknowledges the fact that some of these, you know, fossil fuel fire facilities in rural areas are, are, are less, you know, affluent areas, and that those communities have the help that they need. And if, if facilities want to retire early, um, there's a mechanism for that in sort of a bill pass. So my understanding on the right and the left is that those conversations are actually more productive than you'd think. People on the left understand that that a big bill is going to require um, some transition, and, uh, and and I think Republicans sort of see that all these utilities and industrial uh, industries, but also you know uh, capital markets, are, are saying, "Hey, we want this. We want a transition." So I think that's been positive. Um, we talked about you know some of the rural ideas earlier um, in passing. I think those are things that Republicans maybe haven't as much gotten behind more because they, they're not really having those conversations, not because they wouldn't get behind, which is why I find it so intriguing, because those are the conversations I want to have. I want to find things that I think I can get Republicans excited about, you know, so we can start building coalitions. So all that is to say that in one way, I'm very optimistic that some of these sort of bigger ticket items and some of the more obscure items could get a little bipartisan love. I do worry about the narrative anytime, whether it's Green New Deal or anything else where there's one massive package that just always scares Republicans and it always has. And I don't care if you're talking about climate or, you know, economic recovery or anything else. Big price tags and 900 pages often scare Republicans and so I prefer to focus on low-hanging fruit um, that can have a big impact. I don't mean things that don't have a big in- impact, but low-hanging fruit where maybe you can tweak existing programs, maybe you can plus up funding to certain authorizations and give them a little bit more birth. Uh, maybe you can target certain communities that have been underrepresented. But all, all that is a long way of saying, I think there's really stuff that we can do. And I think the, what I'm hearing in, in industry and among utilities and think tanks is positive. I will always worry about the idea of a massive climate program. But I think what, what Maggie said earlier is that's not necessarily what they're advocating for. They're looking for, you know, practical legislative solutions that can be plugged into bills. So longest way in the world of saying I'm optimistic, but if ever it's messaged as a massive program, then I become very pessimistic that any of it will get done where I'd rather see, you know, target a clean energy standard that allows for a transition. See if we can get that done. Then you've handled one of the largest emission sectors of the economy. EVs, um, the transportation sector, EV charging, then you've handled another third of, of emissions. So I like to think of it that way, but I, I don't think we're super close, but I think we're much closer than, than many people think we are. Yeah, you know, I was just going to add to that. I think it's really important to recognize the time that we're currently in and whoever the next president is, the conditions in which they will be taking the, the presidency. And I think no matter who it is, you know, they are going to be stepping into an economy that that needs stimulus funding, that needs to be jump-started. Um, and I think that there's a huge opportunity here to think about, you know, do we prop up the fossil fuel-based economy of the past, or do we use this use this moment to build the clean energy future that we're talking about here? And I and I think that's right, uh, Maggie. I agree with you 100%. I guess I would I would nuance it a little bit by saying we should definitely focus on building the clean energy, you know, low carbon to zero carbon uh, economy of the future. Just be mindful of some of the communities that are going to struggle in that transition. And, and legislate in a way that is, I don't know if fair is the right word, but in a way that everyone can support. Like the Virginia um, clean energy law I thought was good because 
you know, did people want that that coal plant to live past what the original bill draft said? Probably not in that community. I'm not sure. Or in the state, in the legislature. But in the local community, in the scheme of life, that bill did so much more good than harm. And so the fact of that, you know, one uh, facility is going to stay open a little bit longer than was anticipated. I don't think that's a death knell. I think we should celebrate that Virginia passed a very progressive clean energy bill in a state that was bright red, you know, just two years ago. I'm sort of curious for for both Maggie and Shane. Um, You know, Shane uh, provides this perspective that uh, a little more incremental oriented size scares Republicans. Um, after the CARES Act and the $3 trillion uh, that the government came up with very quickly, um, you know, things like $50 billion for the airlines industry. Um, Maggie, do you find in your conversations with um, members of Congress and such that uh, maybe their imagination has expanded a little bit about government investment into this uh, than before COVID? And curious to, you know, Shane's reaction to that too. Yeah, I will say, I think that's absolutely right. You know, we are, <laughs> we are talking about trillions now. Um, and I don't think that the, the Overton window was quite there pre-COVID. Um, and I think that it is the time and, and we have an opportunity to meet this moment with the scale of policy that the moment demands. And frankly, the scale of policy that the science demands. And I think that's, that's really what we're seeing sort of our, our federal lawmakers struggle with right now. Um, and, and the American people um, have this dialogue and what we are really hoping um, as Evergreen to push. I mean, like one of the things, you know, I see from Republicans is whenever they say there's this big government investment, it's going to crush the economy, right? We invested $3 trillion and it hasn't even done the job, right? There's still 40 million people that are out of work and yet the market seems to be doing pretty well. Well, the stocks are disassociated i, think, I agree with, with that economy, but, but right? that's always the allegation right it's going to crush the market it's going but to... i think there's some legitimate concerns about long-term debts and deficits and how much can you spend and where's the money going it's been hard to have total oversight there's was like a hacking of the system in washington state that that gets people nervous by the way that was the argument they made about the recovery act which is why we had to pare it down and they still said that's why so many republicans opposed it they said it was going to you know that debt that the government was taking on was going to crush the economy it unleashed a decade I got to address a few of these before we move on, because I think some some true, some not true. I mean, one one thing that is true that I will concede is that um, many conservative Republicans are uh, far more fiscally conservative when there's a Democratic president. I don't think, you know, I'm telling any secrets here. I think people are pretty, pretty well aware of that history. And, and, and the fiscal discipline hasn't you know fully been there when Republicans have complete control. But I also think, you know, one misinterpretation is that Republicans are worried about the stock market. Trump. It's not the stock market. It's the economy. Some people use the stock market Leader as sort of, of a marker chain. for the economy. But as Julia flagged, they're totally disassociated right now. I mean, during the, the depths of the COVID shutdown, the stock market was was roaring back to life. So I do think we have to you know separate small businesses getting hurt, people, you know, unemployment going up, people losing, you know, their, their health care and all that sort of stuff. That is not the same as a healthy stock market. And I think that's what, you know, Republicans have been worried about on the three trillion dollar spending. I agree with all of you that that was way outside the Overton window, um, what, three months ago <laughs> or four months ago or when it, right before uh, right before that package was negotiated. Some, I think, individuals will say, we're already spending a massive amount of money. Money's cheap right now because of interest rates. Let's do this. Um, and I think that's a totally valid uh, prescription. I think there are going to be some conservatives who say, we spent $3 trillion. We haven't really seen how it's gone. 
And as we gather more and more data, you know, this this shutdown might have been overkill. And we just want to make sure we understand the facts on the ground and what we're doing. And that if we're spending money, we're doing it the right way. I tend to fall on let's invest in in a recovery. I tend to fall on that side. But I but I do have conversations with others. And there is a sentiment out there that, okay, we did three trillion. We still don't know how it's being spent. We don't know what's going on. Can we just take a beat and see where our economy is going so that we can better craft a future package? So we're talking about the ins and outs of policymaking here, but if we're being real and taking a step back in this particular moment, most of this is going to depend on what happens in the 2020 election, both who takes the White House and who gets elected to Congress. And I think that goes for both within the parties and between the two parties. Meanwhile, there's just a lot going on right now. The COVID pandemic, the recession, uh, now longstanding racial justice issues really coming to the fore. So... I'm just wondering how all this is going to land with voters. Brandon, do you have any thoughts on how Democrats are going to show up this fall? Like, will climate even be driving them with everything else that's going on? Yeah, uh, as a Green New Deal advocate and very progressive uh, activist, it was easy for me to make the pivot from Elizabeth Warren to uh, Joe Biden very quickly and, you know, became a co-chair of Clean Energy for Biden. One of the best things I've done is recruit Maggie <laughs> to become a co-chair of this organization uh, as well. And one of the things that we're seeing in this election right now that's interesting in the numbers is Biden is overperforming with older voters. Voters older than 65 years old, Biden is up by 10 points. That hasn't happened for a Democrat in this century where they've been leading on you know voters over 65. He is underperforming in the numbers right now with young people. There isn't as much enthusiasm. Uh, it's not that they're really vulnerable to losing them to Trump, uh, but more vulnerable that young people Don't may not up. vote or vote third party. And we know that climate isn't big issue for young people. And so for Biden, if he can shore up that young vote and create some enthusiasm around it and turn young people out, well, the combination of where he's doing in the suburbs, where he's doing with older voters, if he if he performs as a Democrat should with young voters, then he cannot be stopped. He will win. And so, you know, this climate can play a big role because that is the mechanism to get some enthusiasm uh, with younger voters. So Maggie, while it's easy for me to make this pivot to Biden very quickly, because you're old, I am old. <laughs> <laughs> what are you seeing? How how are young people going to make this pivot to Biden? What do we need to happen? What do they need to hear on this issue? What do you think the mechanics of that will be? Yeah, it's you know I think it's a really good question, and I think it's you know it's very clear that the Biden campaign is already thinking about this um, by taking steps you know, like the Bernie Biden task force, you know, you notice that Marshney, the executive director of Sunrise Mo- Movement is on the task force alongside Secretary Kerry and, you know, Representative um, AOC. That's a huge deal. And I think it's, it's worth acknowledging the importance of that. Um, that said, exactly as you're saying, Brandon, you know, we know that we need young people to vote to win this election for Joe Biden. And we know that climate is among the most important issues to them. And so it only makes sense using very simple math um, that this is an issue that will be a winning issue for Joe Biden to campaign on. And I think we've seen him, you know, even further embrace this issue. We know that, you know, he and his campaign are doing even more outreach to environmental justice leaders to continue to build out that aspect of his platform. And I think this is a this issue is a real opportunity um, to unite the Democratic Party around and, and get out there and, and win this election. 
Yeah, and we'll throw to another David Roberts piece on Vox in the show notes that uh, raises those questions around how the Biden campaign is engaging with progressives. And really, you know, it is an open question, though, how this ultimately plays out and just how much they will embrace uh, the progressive movement. Uh, So lots more to talk about in the lead up to November. But for now, I think we'll leave it there. Maggie, thanks so much for coming on and speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Well, hopefully that interview helped pull back the curtain a little bit on what Evergreen Action's up to and how the Inslee team came up with their climate platform. Panning out, I think we could all take a page out of the Inslee operating manual and listen to local communities the way that Maggie described. To do that, again, we highly recommend checking out the podcast and the list put together by Alexis, mentioned at the start of the show, and also to read the piece by Ayana in the Washington Post. Again, we'll link to all that in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode in these crazy times. Be sure to subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts. And if you have a moment, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. Thanks again, and until soon.